God delights to declare you as righteous. God delights to celebrate your righteousness bestowed upon you from Christ, but it is on you. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part eight of Prepare the Way of the Lord, the final in a series from the Gospel of Matthew by Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul's text for today is Matthew chapter three, verses 13 through 17, covering the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. John the Baptist is the focus first, and we see him in verse 14, misunderstanding why this Christ would want to be baptized by him. But right away, John submits to the Lord's request to be followed by the Spirit's descending and hearing a voice from heaven, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And here we begin part eight in the conclusion of our series, Prepare the Way of the Lord. You understand that as Jesus presents himself for baptism, he is not doing it because he has sinned. Jesus does not come to John as a sinner. He does not come to John needing to repent. Jesus comes to John sinless and yet identifying himself with sinners. John has preached very clearly, you have to be baptized as an outward reality of your internal transformation of heart, turning away from your sin. That's John's message. Jesus shows up and says, give me that baptism, not because I'm a sinner, not because I need to repent, but because I want to anchor myself to these people. He'll do this time and time again throughout his gospel in the way that he speaks. He will anchor himself to those who he's come to save. Here at the point of his baptism, he very very graphically, through the immersion in water and coming up again, he anchors himself to the sinners whom he has come to save. And what will be true from now on within the theology of the gospel is whatever happens to Jesus will happen to his people. This is a wonderful encouragement on which you can meditate this morning. Jesus establishes himself in a representative role for sinners, and he does so fulfilling all righteousness. So just take those two thoughts together and see what that means for you. Jesus obeys perfectly, not simply so at the moment of his death, he is an acceptable sacrifice for your sin, but so also to carve out an ocean of righteousness that will be credited to your account. You see, Jesus' fulfilling of all righteousness renders him an acceptable sacrifice, certainly. But as he anchors himself to the people whom he's come to save, now they will be the beneficiaries of his upholding of the law. Stated otherwise, when you put your faith in Christ for salvation... What God does is he credits your account with infinite righteousness that has already been worked out by his son. That is what comes your way in the gospel. Every Lord's day when we gather, we gather as righteous saints. 
not having lived a perfectly righteous life in and of ourselves. You know that. But rather that God would proclaim from heaven, in my sons and daughters, I am well pleased. That is the message that God proclaims every single time we gather. Why? Because Jesus established himself as our representative head. And in that we find the pleasure of God. God delights to declare you as righteous. God delights to celebrate your righteousness bestowed upon you from Christ, but it is on you. He delights to celebrate that. He is not begrudging in his celebration of you. God does not hold back his praise of you. Again, it brings him glory to celebrate Your Christ-inherited righteousness. It brings God glory to do so because it, it makes manifest the wonders of the gospel. That you would be counted as righteous only ever brings him glory. And so it is entirely appropriate that you would train your hearts to think upon God's celebration of you in so much as you are found in Christ knowing that in doing so, you are aligning your heart with that in which God finds great pleasure. There are, of course, implications that readily fall out of this as you think about day-to-day training your heart in that which God finds pleasure in, namely the righteousness that Christ carved out and is bestowed to you in the gospel. The biggest hindrance that works against you finding pleasure in this is your pride. Your pride works in such a way that you always want to earn your favor before God. Your pride works in such a way that you do not want your righteousness to exist wholly with Christ, credited to your account by virtue of his death, but in some way to say, God, didn't I do well? Don't you accept me because of what I've done if not wholly, at least in part. That's our pride. And the implication that would flow out of the fact that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness and established himself as a representative head is that you would be killing your pride. As a Christian, you would make it a priority to put to death your pride and to ever bask in the reality of Christ's righteousness credited to your account. The third reality in which we see God's pleasure is the suffering of his son. The suffering of his son. Jesus is baptized. He comes up from the water. And all of a sudden, the text takes on a very Trinitarian emphasis. The heavens are opened. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. And then God the Father speaks. So this is one of the few texts, at least within the gospel, where we see all three members of the Trinity in view at once. It's a very Trinitarian text. That's why we recited the Nicene Creed this morning, so as to confess afresh our belief in the Trinity. Now, with that being said, the point of the text is not the fact of the Trinity. 
We can draw some inferences about what we believe concerning God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit from this text. But the point of the text is not to teach us primarily about the Trinity. Rather, the Trinitarian emphasis in the text simply adds more to our understanding of God's affirmation of what's going on. By bringing all three members of the Godhead into view at once, there is an even more emphatic affirmation of everything that's happening here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in complete agreement as to the the rightness of Jesus' baptism. And particularly noteworthy is what God says, namely, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God speaks, presumably for those around to hear, not just Jesus. He speaks in the third person. This is my beloved son. Other people hearing this. And we read this morning Isaiah 42. And the reason for that is because... There is a very clear allusion in this speech from God back to that portion of the Old Testament. Behold my servant in whom my soul delights, whom I uphold, in whom is my pleasure, in whom is all of my delight. God is borrowing from Isaiah's words in his affirmation of the Son. As ever, when we see these references back to the Old Testament, you have to ask why. Why didn't God say it in a different way that did not make a connection back to Isaiah? Why did he say it in this way so as to to form that anchor point in the servant song? Most likely, God is not simply affirming his son, though he certainly is doing that, but he is projecting what will be his son's ministry. The servant songs of Isaiah, 42, 49, 50, and 53. Tell us about the ministry that this servant will have. In Isaiah 42, we learn that he'll be meek, humble, won't raise his voice in the street, won't crush a broken reed. But that's not the defining mark of the servant theology, as you know. As you go on and you read them together as one complete picture, the defining mark of the servant's ministry will be his suffering. And as Jesus' baptism projects forward to the rest of his earthly life, he's not simply fulfilling all righteousness here, but he will do that as a way of living. As Jesus' baptism projects forward and anticipates his whole earthly life, we understand God's declaration to intimate, if only by way of a hint, Jesus' coming suffering. This is my beloved son who will suffer for the sake of sinners and in him I am well pleased. God is giving his seal of approval on all that Jesus is. Not simply the historical reality of him having been baptized by John, but all of the gospel truths that emerge out of this event, including his suffering. And therein, again, we find yet another facet of our salvation. Jesus obeyed perfectly. And it was necessary that he fulfilled a righteousness so at the point of his death on the cross, he would be rendered an acceptable sacrifice to make a payment for sin. 
Jesus established himself as the representative head, and in so doing, his righteousness is credited to our account. And now as we consider the reality of his suffering, you see that part of the gospel narrative wherein Jesus makes a payment for our sin. You see, if all Jesus had done was to establish himself as the representative head, if all he had done, if all he had done was to carve out an ocean of righteousness that would be credited to you, you still stand condemned. Now all of this righteousness is there to your account, but so also is your sin. That hasn't yet been dealt with. At the point of the cross, two things need to happen. You need to deal with your sin. Your debt, infinite as it is, has to be wiped clean. And then you need to be credited with infinite righteousness. There is a twofold exchange at the point of the cross. Jesus makes a payment for your sin and he gives you his righteousness. Both are necessary for you to stand before the father this morning and to call him father. So you see, as God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, intimating the reality of his future suffering. The gospel is coming ever clearer into view. And as God declares his pleasure, even in the suffering of his son, that must be where our hearts find our pleasure. We are commended to find pleasure in the things in which God finds pleasure. He delights in the mission of his son. He delights in the death of his son on the cross. Because by it, many will be accounted as righteous. And in reality, it is very difficult for you to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus until you've learned to take pleasure in his suffering. In reality, it is very difficult for you to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus until you have learned to take pleasure in his suffering. Now, the reason I say that is because if you cannot stand the teaching concerning his death, and many could not, Jesus spoke often about his death. Many left him not being able to take in that teaching. If you can't stand that teaching, then you have no place with Christ. His death is not effective for you. You don't get to take the bits of Jesus that you like and leave the rest of it behind. You embrace the biblical Jesus, the whole Christ, including his suffering on the cross. His gruesome and graphic death has to be that which you cast yourself upon so as to have your sins accounted for. And the second you do, you understand the implications. You take all of this text together. Jesus has established himself as a representative head, which means whatever is true of him will become true of his people. You see how this begins to unpack now. God hints at his suffering and Jesus will tell his disciples, take up your cross, follow after me. If you want to be my disciples, you must learn the way of suffering also. So it's very hard for you to be a disciple of Christ, to truly submit your life to his word and to walk in a 
genuine path of obedience every day, it is very hard to be a disciple of Christ until you have learnt to take pleasure in his suffering. May God give us the grace to look at the man on the cross and say, I delight in him. The last reality in which we see God's pleasure in this wonderful scene is that Jesus' baptism shows how he will one day reign as a king. He's obedient to his father. He is the representative head of sinners. He will one day suffer and he will one day reign. And I say that, as some of you have probably already noted, I say that because there is a slight change, a slight deviation from God's quotation of Isaiah, allusion to Isaiah, and what Isaiah himself said. There is a slight deviation. Many of you will have already made a note of it, and it is significant. The prophet Isaiah says, Behold my servant, my chosen one, in whom is all my delight. God says, This is my beloved son. Just a very subtle change, but ever so significant. Not my servant, though he will be that, but my son. The language of sonship throughout the Gospels carries with it a complex matrix of theological ideas. We don't have time to unpack it fully this morning. When you see the language of sonship in the Gospels, it can speak of the familial relationship between a father and a son. It does do that often in John's Gospel. It can also speak not so much with an emphasis on the familial relationship, but on a royal relationship. And it does so particularly within Matthew's Gospel. There is an Old Testament narrative that you can trace out beginning in Genesis 1 that goes through the scriptures wherein we find positions of royalty being declared as sons. You see it most clearly in 2 Samuel 7 when God gives to David a royal covenant. He establishes the Davidic line as a royal line. David's going to be the king. Every son after him will be the king and you will be a son to me, says God. The language of sonship from the Old Testament scriptures carries with it a particular note of royalty. And Matthew uses sonship often in that particular way. As God draws from Isaiah here and yet changes ever so subtly the language of servanthood to sonship, he is bringing into view the reality of Jesus' future reign. He is saying at least two things. This is my son who will suffer, and here is my son who will reign. And in both I am well pleased. Or to encapsulate the thought into a single idea, here is my servant king. And we are to find great encouragement in that reality. Reading through the gospel, you understand the time is not now. Jesus didn't come in his first earthly ministry so as to set up his throne to overthrow the Roman government and to reign on behalf of his people. That's not the way this story is going to play out. But he doesn't hesitate to speak about a future reign when he returns. 
For those that would put their faith in him, he will one day appear as a benevolent, loving, sovereign king. And again, grasp the whole text together. Understand all that is working together in this text and its implications for you. Jesus has established himself as the representative head of those whom he has come to save. What happens to him will happen to them. As Jesus goes to the cross, he plays that out and says, you guys got to pick up your cross. You're in this with me. I've anchored myself to you. So if I'm suffering, it means that will be your path now. But project forward. Go forward to the final horizon of salvation history with your anchoring to Jesus in view and understand that his reign means very good things for you. Namely, you will one day reign with the Lord Jesus. He is coming back. And when he establishes his reign on this earth, you will not be far from him. You will not be far from your savior. But he will draw you in to feast with him and to reign with him. It is not the Christian's call in this life to reign. The logic of the gospel that we must ever keep before us is that the cross comes before the crown. But the wonderful hope that we have is that Jesus is coming back as a king. And in that day, we will reign with him. And in this, God takes much pleasure. God takes pleasure in the obedience of his son, in his representative role, in his suffering, and in his future reign. May our hearts follow, taking pleasure in the son as the servant king. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for the baptism of the Lord Jesus, that he insisted on fulfilling all righteousness, that he insisted that John would baptize him, and in doing so, unlocked for us so many theological realities that we can ponder afresh this morning. We see your pleasure in these realities. That Jesus was an obedient son, that Jesus was a representative head, that Jesus came to suffer, and that one day he will reign. Lord, you take pleasure in these things. Train our hearts that we would rejoice in them also. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Matthew's narrative, found in chapter 3, following his prologue, is humbling. We've seen John the Baptist early in the chapter, and a look into his powerful presence, as well as his meekness. John the Baptist had many followers, and he didn't seem to have any fear of the religious establishment. In fact, he challenges them to repent. We're then offered a look at his humility when Jesus arrives for baptism, and he proclaims, quote, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Gospel writers record that King Herod took John's life at the height of his ministry, but not before he would herald the Savior's coming. John the Baptist had fulfilled his role as the presenter of Christ's coming to save. Christ's early ministry was also about a message of repentance, just as John's had been. But it's by the power of Christ's resurrection and his spirit being placed within us that we can learn to hate our sin and repent. 
Learn more about Jesus and the power of his resurrection that can change your life forever when you visit our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Broadcasts. There you'll find an entire audio archive of Pastor Paul's teachings, including what we've talked about in this program. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you're in the area this Sunday, I hope you'll accept our invitation to come worship with us. If you don't have a local church to attend, we'd welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. or at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Come Monday, it's a brand new series with part one of Making Sense of Gospel Pain. I'm Matt Williams. Hope you have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.